Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Good morning. Today is still the day the Lord has made. It was in the last hour, and it is now, and it will be in the next hour. This is the day the Lord has made. And what we're going to talk about in uh, in the first half hour of this hour, the top of the hour, is that reality and how sometimes we miss it, the unseen realm. We have talked with Michael Heiser before. We have talked with him about his book, The Unseen Realm. He and I have talked about the reality of angels and the things that we misunderstand about them. And today, he and I are going to talk about the gospel and Stranger Things. Now, for those of you who are Stranger Things fans uh, on Netflix, you are probably catching your breath right now and saying, oh, they're allowed to talk about that on Christian radio? What? Christians are allowed to admit they watch Stranger Things? Christians are allowed to talk about Stranger Things? Stranger Things, for those of you who don't know, is a wildly popular uh, Netflix series, and in the uh, in the three seasons that have taken place thus far, um, we have been introduced to a cast of characters in a little town called Hawkins, Indiana. And Hawkins, Indiana is where we all live, and the issues that are faced by the people of Hawkins are the issues we all face. They just happen to see those issues in ways that are unseen to many of us today. And the gospel, the gospel actually has a place in this conversation. And so um, for those of you who are uh, fans of of fantasy and fans of science fiction and fans uh, even of that which is a little bit dystopian, those of you who are fans of uh, of this wildly popular Netflix series, you're going to love the conversation I'm going to have with Michael Heiser about the world turned upside down, finding the gospel in Stranger Things. For those of you who don't know anything about what we're talking about, this conversation is especially for you because this is a cultural conversation uh, that we all need to be equipped to have. So Michael Heiser will be here with me in just a moment. We're going to talk about the world turned upside down, finding the gospel in Stranger Things. Michael Heiser is back. For those of you uh, who who don't know him, um, he's one of my favorite authors. He he has written a number of best-selling books, including The Unseen Realm. I'd put that one at the very top of your list if you haven't read any Michael Heiser yet. Uh, he's also written a book called Supernatural, one that's just entitled Angels, which uh, is really helpful in terms of the confusion that exists among many, including Christians, uh, on the topic of angels. He's written The Bible Unfiltered, which if you are looking for uh, a a genuine um, way of understanding the scriptures as as they are, um, The Bible Unfiltered is uh, is really helpful as well. So I, I obviously like a lot of them. He, he doesn't just write nonfiction, though. He also writes some other stuff, which I'm going to invite him to tell us about here in just a moment. Michael Heiser, welcome back. Thank you for having me back. Okay, so we're going to talk today specifically about the world turned upside down. 
finding oh, yeah. the gospel in Stranger Things. But I think we better start with um, revisiting the unseen realm. Because if I don't acknowledge uh, a supernatural reality, none of this is going to make sense. Yeah, that's true. You know, the uh, do you want to go into unseen realm? I do. I want you to just yeah. take us back to unseen realm for a minute, as, as so we can establish some groundwork that yeah. we can build on. Uh, unseen realm, you know, and thanks for mentioning it at the beginning here. <clears throat> the uh, as far as the book, it's Genesis to Revelation. You know, kind of the what scholars would call the meta narrative, the overarching narrative of scripture, but with a twist. And that is from the very beginning, there has been this sort of symbiotic intentional relationship between the world of people, our world, and again, the unseen realm, the spiritual world. And that is, again, by design that that world in scripture is often uh, cast as a template for how things should be here and God's interest in, in humanity. So it, the, the unseen world in Scripture is assumed, and it's also woven into practically everything that you read in Scripture. Even you know, just your regular Bible stories, there's, there's an undercurrent going on of spiritual conflict between you know, two kingdoms, really. Well, in that kingdom conflict, I think we tend to think of— um, and maybe maybe I am actually exposing something about the literature that I've that I have read in the past. I tend to think of uh, of that conflict as mostly negative. It's mostly hostile. It's mostly uh, demons. It's mostly really scary figures. But the right. unseen realm is actually also has a whole nother cast of characters that we need to be mindful of as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, we think of them as you know angels, which is a. a you know, it's an it's a serviceable but imprecise term. Uh, there's lots of other, you know, not critters. Well, yes, a few critters, but there's lots of other characters. You know, in the in God's heavenly host. Uh, you know, part of the problem, as you mentioned earlier, was was terminology. You know, the Bible has terms for the members of the heavenly host as far as what they are, and then where they rank, and then what they do. And we tend to sort of smash all those things together and sort of forget that there are three buckets, you know, three semantic categories for what's going on here. But, you know, the pages of Scripture are filled with conflict. There wouldn't be a conflict if you, if you only get one side. Uh, but that's the that's the side that we tend to fixate on. Uh, I don't know if it's, you know, why that is. I guess there's a, a number of reasons why there would, you know, that would be entertainment value in our culture anyway, is sort of glorifies it. And so that's what pops into our head, you know, immediately when we get into anything like you know, Stranger Things or anything else in pop culture that has a quote-unquote spiritual element. You know, it's always the dark side because that apparently appeals, you know, more. But if you remember back in the day, I mean, there was a show, you know, Touched by by an Angel mm -hmm. that was quite popular. And I thought it was really well done because it often, it often illustrated Providence very well. Uh, Providence is a big deal both in, in my Stranger Things book and I think actually in the show, even though the show isn't doing anything deliberately Christian. Uh, they're not calling it providence, but uh, basically every episode and the outcome of you know what happens with the characters is the result of the the concatenation of a whole series of events that are extraordinarily unlikely, and we call that providence as Christians. You know, the world would call it serendipity or something else, uh, but the show is just full of that. So it it really does a good job of you know really hitting on both sides, even though the show has become known for you know, it's otherworldly 
uh, you know, dark sort of take. All right. So you have highlighted here the fact that Stranger Things is not deliberately Christian. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. a, that, that might be kind of an understatement for some people that are absorbing <laughs> this today. Um, but but it does uh, it does contain um, truth and gospel threads if we are willing to look for them and find them and suss them out and and then bring them up into conversations with others. So when we talk about people culture are, engagement, people are yeah. watching Stranger Things. And so for those of us who are Christians, if we want to bring the mind of Christ to bear on this, we certainly can. Tell us how to do that. Yeah, I think people are going to be shocked uh, when they read the book because, again, while while the writers and the, you know, the storyline isn't anything overtly Christian— Good. It's excellent storytelling, you know. And, and you mentioned dystopian, you know, stories. It's also you know, a really cool cover. <laughs> right. Well, I know, not, I, I know as the, the author, you're not responsible for that, but right. the cover of I'm the not. book. I know. But I, li- I, I just like had it, to but... like throw that in here. It's really cool. It, okay. They go did ahead. a nice job, but the, the 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 show itself is really really good storytelling. I mean, the reason why it's so popular is that every character in Stranger Things is broken. Some are broken a little. Some are broken a lot. Uh, all the main characters are what they are because of the of the tragedy in their lives, and it's very easy, you know, for people, you know, to identify with that. And then you throw you you match that, you marry that to the, you know, really the hunger in the culture, uh, the dissatisfaction with a an atheistic materialistic worldview. People want to believe that there's a reality beyond what they see, and the show taps into that really well. And 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 the reason why this maps over to scripture easily is because good good storytelling maps over to good storytelling. And it, it's pretty much that simple. I think people are going to be shocked by the number of, of sort of spiritual themes and truths that track on the gospel story, you know, again, the gospel as story, really from Genesis to Revelation, uh, that are that come through in this show. And again, I don't think it's intentional. And that's what that's the neat thing about it. I think that, you know, we just have a whole case of providence here, you know, that that there are things in this show that do what they do so well and that are so easily mappable to, again, the, the story of, of, of Jesus and the story of humanity, God's interest in humanity, that I think readers are, of my book anyway are, are really going to be surprised. Uh, frankly, this was an easy book to write. It wasn't my idea. Uh, when it was proposed, I thought, yeah, that, that sounds good, but boy, how, how am I going to do that? And I, I found a method. I have a little self-published book called What Does God Want? You know, I self-published it so I, because I want to translate the content into as many languages as possible and give it away. But part of that book is, is this, the gospel as story. God's interest in humanity from Genesis to Revelation as story, you know, in 10 pages or whatever. And mm-hmm. I actually took that and then I mapped the show to that, and it was easy. It, it's just remarkable at how, you know, how well the the show does what it does. I mean, we can get into some specific spiritual things, both you know, positive and negative. We don't want to give the bad guys all the all the airtime <laughs> here, but well, well um, let's take a let's take really a quick well break, done. and then and then let's do that because I want to talk about you know I, the the sense of belonging or that we can't save oh, ourselves. Yeah. Um, or that there's a character in here who really is all of us, I mean, or each of us, and we need to acknowledge that as well. So we're going to continue this conversation with Michael Heiser about Stranger Things. The book is The World Turned Upside Down, Finding the Gospel in Stranger Things. Michael Heiser is the author. We'll be right back. I'm smelling coffee, birds are singing just outside. Here comes your mercy streaming in with the morning light. My heart. 
continuing my conversation with Michael Heiser. Uh, he is the author of lots of best-selling books. His latest is The World Turned Upside Down, Finding the Gospel in Stranger Things. It actually comes out appropriately on Halloween. Um, but, you know, because I'm <clears throat> special, I have a copy in my hand. And one of the things that I actually love is just the contents page, right? So, oh, I know. I, and, it's, and it's radio, so it's going to be really hard for me to describe this. But there's a page that uh, has the contents on it that just, just black type on, on a white page. But then the facing page is the entire table of contents upside down in the reverse, white on black. And I, I got to tell you, just that in and of itself is provocative. And it gets me thinking about the inside out, upside down nature of the world and the guys who turned the world upside down, which is supposed yeah. to be us. Right. That is who we are called to be in the world today um, as Christians. And so I do love how provocative even just the way the book t- is put together. Um, so but let's talk about the content. What are some of the either the characters or the themes, something that you want to to draw out right now? Obviously, we don't want to give the whole book away, nor do we have time to do so. But what sort of comes to the top of what comes to the surface for you? And like, I want to be sure people know this. Yeah, I, I would say if, if I could zero on one thing, I mean, I mentioned Providence before. This is the whole show. And, and I, I spend a good deal of time with this on the book, is really a Genesis 50-20 sort of event. This, that's the Joseph story, the culmination, you know, when he turns to his brothers and says, you know, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That That is just a thematic touch point for the whole thing, because on the one hand, you know, you have this, this grotesque, you know, supernatural evil that everybody watching the show, everybody in the show who, who's aware that this thing exists, they know that it's bigger than them. They know that they just, there's no way they could beat this thing. Uh, they're going to lose. They're going to die. You know I mean? It, it just, that's just what it is because of what it is and what, what they are in their weakness. But yet <clears throat> this thing that becomes known as the hive mind, it, it's, its own nature is actually its own weakness. Because if, if think of it this way, you know, the hive mind is not omniscient, okay? It can only track on thoughts that are within its own collective. And so anything outside the hive mind, it doesn't know, it's not aware of. Now, it, it will learn and never forget. But this is actually the key to the characters, the very human characters, you know, defeating it. Because they're doing things outside the hive, so to speak, that they're just doing the best they can. They're just doing their job. They're, they're, they're coming together. They're doing their little things. And, and it, it illustrates well, positively, that just like the church should be, if everybody just did their job, as silly as it might seem, as mundane as it might seem, but everybody does their, their, their own task, it can produce, you know, amazing things. And again, we've sort of lost the sense of this in church. You know, everybody wants to do this or that or the other thing. And we, we lose the sense that, hey, you know, in the body, the body analogy Paul uses, the smallest part of that, if that goes wrong, like a genetic defect, okay, or, or a germ or something like that, the whole thing can collapse. And, and Stranger Things actually, through the collective of the, of the kids and their friends and whoever else knows about the evil that's actually in the town, they just do what they can. And they do it together and they, they depend on each other. They set aside all their differences those who know the alternate reality is real, it changes them, you know, completely. That they are, they're, they're a unit, as as motley and as, you know, disturbed, 
as broken as they are. They are a unit and they function well and they actually defeat this much more powerful enemy. And the central character of all this, Eleven, she is not what she is without the evil in her life, you know, without the, the abuse done to her. I mean, she is absolutely central to everything that comes out of this and, and their eventual victory. It comes at great cost, but she is not who she is without suffering. And and again, there, there's just so many metaphors that you can track on here about the way the Bible portrays evil and its power, but its weaknesses, you know, God's greater power. There's any number of things. The whole, I mean, it's not a long book, but every page of the book, you know, you're going to learn something like that. And for fans of Stranger Things, I think this is a great book for people who aren't uh, believers, certainly for, for Christians and youth groups and parents to read to their kids and all that. But you're going to be able to appreciate the, the, the cleverness of the show on a different level because that thing that you, know, you don't believe, you don't, you don't believe in Christianity or that thing that you might even hate, you're going to see how this show that you love really has – so many links and touch points to the story that, you know, goes with this guy, Jesus. I mean, there's just so much of it in, in, in the book and in the show. And again, I think it's providence. I think the whole th- the whole takeaway really here is, is providence and how the church should be functioning as one, uh, united by the, the reality they all have experienced okay, in, in Christ and do it, just do your job. Just do your job, and and you can accomplish things like the Great Commission. You can defeat evil. Let me ask you this, Michael. Um, Did it surprise you, and if I missed it, you know, please correct me here. Did it surprise you that there really is no overtly Christian influence in the town of Hawkins, Indiana? It it. That is, I think, a telling omission. The only time you ever see a minister is at the the one kid's funeral, uh, and. And that's it. I mean, there there are one or two sort of disparaging references, you know, to to faith, like it's not going to help help us in our situation here. Um, yeah, I, I, and that so was I just telling. think that yeah, I thought it was telling, and I I feel like in terms of the opportunity that exists in the culture, that is that is something that Christians uh, we need to recognize. We need to recognize that the world actually now sees the Christian influence as so irrelevant. They don't even think to write it in anymore. Yeah, for all the, the the attention to detail that they paid, and and the attention to detail is extraordinary. If you it grew up in the eighties, you're, you're going to see every store you ever visited, and you know whatnot. And and you know back, you know back in the eighties, you know there was a more, you know, positive acknowledgement of the role, you know, faith just generally, you know, in the culture. So that was a detail that they, you know, quote unquote, you know, overlooked. But but again, I, I it makes me smile because it's like you're. You know, dudes, your whole story, <laughs> your whole right. story just maps over to the to the to the bigger story in such easy ways. And and uh, again, in the last chapter of the book, I talk about season three, uh, and and also, I think season three. I, what what is said? I, what I say about season three, I think I can also say about season four, even though it's not filmed yet. I don't want to give anything away here, but but I think I think if I could. Be this audacious. I think God is using your show, whether you like it or not. Uh, and, and and the storytelling in it, again, it's easy to map over to the to the supernatural meta narrative of scripture. Hmm. Restoration and redemption. I'll just give people that here at the very end. Michael Heiser, thank you so much for always uh, reconnecting us to the unseen realm. We appreciate it. Yep, thank you. 
The book is The World Turned Upside Down, Finding the Gospel in Stranger Things. We'll be right back. So we haven't done uh, any international headlines yet today. I recognize that um, that's unusual for us by this point on a Monday morning. So Dr. David Aikman will be here next. We're going to talk about Brexit. uh, And there is actually a lot of news related to this. And then um, we are going to, I don't know, spin the globe might be the best way to describe this. We're going to touch on Hong Kong. We're certainly going to touch on Syria and the Kurds. Um, and what's going on uh, now with the withdrawal of U.S. troops from the region. So all of that up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Albert Einstein wants to find the word insanity, and it applies to parenting your child. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. So what's the crazy maker for parents? According to Einstein, it's doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Parenting is no walk in the park. For sure. And just when you get the hang of it, everything changes. The parenting methods we've used in the past stop working, and we're left scratching our heads. Will children grow? And as they do, the way we relate needs to change. Are the old methods failing you? Hey, Mom, Dad, stop the insanity and try another method. You cannot do the same thing over and over again and expect different results. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to ParentingTodaysTeens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. My name is Bond, James Bond. That means that Dr. David Aikman is in the house. Welcome back, sir. Thank you, Carmen. Very nice to be with you again. I mean, you're in whatever house you're in, and I am in the house that I am in, and Paul is in the house of Faith Radio. Right. Okay. Right. We're all you're making this thing. more confusing than it needs to be, Carmen. <laughs> <laughs> hey, David, let's start with Brexit, and let's make it less confusing than it currently is. Um, it was our understanding that a, a some kind of agreement was reached between the EU um, and, well, theoretically, uh, Britain, and yet that does not seem to be the way that it's working itself out. Well, what happened is there was a deal made by um, Boris Johnson, the prime minister of the EU, and that was an extraordinarily successful diplomatic arrangement because he had to get on board the Taoiseach of Ireland, uh, Leo Baradka, and he did, and uh, he got the agreement uh, approved by the EU. But when he came to Parliament, the vast number of Remainers in the Parliament, both on the Conservative side and the Labour side, and particularly the Lib Democrat side, absolutely dragged their feet to stop this, dragged their feet to stop this thing going forward. So they prevented him from putting it to a simple vote, yes or no, to the deal in Parliament on Friday. And he's hoping to do that either today or tomorrow. Okay, and the and the reaction uh, by the EU sounds to me, I mean, as I'm just reading headlines related to this, um, as if they want to know, like they want to know. It's the 21st of October. Um, the thing, the thing has a deadline of the 31st of October. Um, the EU right. is growing weary of uh, of Parliament dragging its feet. 
oh, they've got Brexit fatigue, and so is almost everybody in the UK. And in fact, all this talk of a same referendum is ridiculous because the number of people who are pro-Brexit has actually grown since it became clear that there were people in Parliament desperately trying to stop it from happening. And this really is a revolt of the peasants against the new nobility, the elites of the establishment. Talk with us a little bit about national sovereignty, because it feels like this is a conversation about national sovereignty versus a more globalist um, effort. Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, Johnson is in the same mold as uh, President Trump in that he regards the nation state as the best crucible for effective democracy and multinational organizations or globalist organizations as a threat to local politics, which indeed they are. And he is certainly moving in the Trump direction by wanting to affirm that Britain should really be out of the EU. And don't forget that 52%, 48% vote in 2016 indicated that a significant majority of Britons wanted to be out of the EU. And that, I think, is still the case. People are fed up with all this foot dragging. So, David, just to, to sort of help people see this at the most personal of levels, you know, I think that the question we have to ask ourselves is, you know, it, it, does my own community and where I live, are we best equipped to make decisions related to, uh, you know, whether or not everybody ought to have a cow and a pig or just a cow um, and whether or not our kids should be educated in schools that are uh, mixed gender, same gender, um, whether or not we should have uh, an educational system that includes a particular teaching or does not, that those decisions are best made, I might argue, at the most local of levels, because ultimately all politics are local. As we move yeah. up, as we move up the ladder and we even, you know, even let's say we we make things federal, like, right, that the whole federal government is going to determine those things. That feels like an infringement upon my rights as a person and then as a parent um, and as the citizen of a local community. Then when you go even multinational and you say, we're going to make decisions uh, on a global level, you have a very, very small number of people, most of whom have never been to Kingston Springs, Tennessee, making decisions about what we are going to do right here in the most local of places. Isn't that ultimately what's at issue here? Indeed, it is, Carmen. I mean, it is a global elite. Um, basically saying we know best for people all over the world what is in their best interest. They're too stupid to know. They're all deplorables. And this attitude has really uh, aroused deep resentment in most of the countries of Europe where you see significant local national movements growing up which are completely opposed to the universalist um, let's accept every migrant policy that was formulated by the EU three or four years ago. So people are really rising up the grassroots all over the place, including as far away as Australia, because they want to have 
local rather than federal representation of their views. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's turn our attention to some of those other places um, around the world. I mean, man, I mean, the world is just just in, in a little bit of uh, of chaos in, in terms of local uprisings and people, you know, people taking to the streets and saying, I'm I am unsatisfied with the way things are working out. So maybe we'll go first. Um, you know what? Let's take a quick break and then let's go first to Hong Kong. And then uh, you can take us wherever you want to take us next. So I'm talking with Dr. David Aikman, and he and I will be right back. People around the world increasingly uh, seem to think they do want a revolution. Uh, We are talking with Dr. David Aikman, editor of Godspeed magazine. Let's turn our attention, David, to Hong Kong. Right. Well, you've had a continuation. I think it's been 20 weeks now since the protest first started against the extradition bill that would have allowed Hong Kong residents and visitors to be returned to China. That bill has been withdrawn, but the protesters are now focusing on two basic elements. One is the need for an independent inquiry in police brutality during opposition to the protest. The other is a wish for universal suffrage, which, of course, the Chinese Communist government is not going to allow under any circumstances. So you have a youthful, largely a youthful community dedicated to trying continuing protests as long as possible to get some of these concessions. And a but propped up by Beijing, which is determined to resist every uh, every claim for change. So it's an ongoing situation. I think eventually the Chinese government hopes that the protests will sort of die out and that they won't have to uh, exert really murderous pressure on the on the demonstrations. Now, here in the United States of America, when we think of the word suffrage, we are thinking about the hard-fought battle over voting rights and the voting rights of women and the voting rights of African Americans. Um, When we're talking about suffrage in Hong Kong, whose voting rights are we talking about? Well, we're we're talking about the right of opposition uh, legislators to stand for election without having to be approved by the overall administration, which essentially gives the Communist Party in Beijing a veto of who can run against the Hong Kong administrative region government, which is currently led by Carrie Lam. And if there's one thing the communists object to, it's anybody challenging their demand for total control. So I don't think we're going to see any resolution of this at all. So it's really about who is allowed to run. Um, so yes, it's exactly. it's controlling who I can vote for, which that's I think right. is exactly. that's an important difference. And I just thought it would be helpful for people to understand, um, you know, that's really what we're talking about. The Communist Party really controls whose name is on the ballot. And therefore, that's they're controlling my vote by limiting me to only voting for people they already want. That's right. Yes, they want everybody to be a good supporter of the 
Communist Party in Beijing and not to back up these dissidents and people who don't want to come under the control of the party. All right, pivoting from uh, pivoting from Hong Kong, uh, where do you want to go next? Because you and I have a long list. Well, okay, let's try Chile first, because that is a little bit out of the ordinary. Um, Chile, as everybody knows, was under a military dictatorship from 1975 when August Pinochet came to power and eventually got freedom in, I think, 1990. It's been a very successful country economically, but recently there have been problems with living standards and uh, a, a real burst of popular outrage, outrage against an increase in the prices of metro tickets, subway tickets. So I think that's essentially a local thing. I don't, think, I don't think it's part of a larger sort of local nationalist movement. But the case of Barcelona is very different because that goes back to protests that started more than a year ago by Catalan people saying, we want independence from Spain. And although it's probably not true that everybody in Catalonia wants to have independence, a significant minority do, and they are protesting against the vicious prison sentences imposed on those Catalan legislators who led the revolt against Spain last year. And they consider those the punishments imposed very unfair and quite disproportionate to what they were accused of. So I'm scanning headlines right now, David, about uh, protests in Haiti um, and protests in Lebanon, uh, protests obviously in Chile, which we have discussed, in Catalonia, which is in Spain. Um Venezuela. You and I have not talked about Venezuela. Um, is there any, I mean, I'm just kind of a springing that on you, but do we know anything about the status of things there? Because I feel like, you know, they were on the verge of collapse and we kind of all knew it. And then we have turned our attention in other directions. That's right. I think they managed, the Venezuelan regime managed to um sort of jump away from the precipice they were about to go over. Um, They calmed things down significantly, and the protests there have not continued in a way that would have caused international attention once again to resume on that country. Obviously, Mm. it's still in very bad shape. It's very badly governed, and its leadership is being propped up by support from countries like Cuba and, of course, Russia, so and indeed China. So I don't think that in the long term there's going to be an easy resolution of significant change. All right, and then let's turn our attention to what is happening in northern Syria. Um, we are getting reports that the United States has pulled troops out of um, uh of the entire northern region, which means that the particularly the cities of Aleppo and Raqqa no longer have any U.S. military uh, support whatsoever. 
folks who are listening will certainly remember the battle for those cities against uh, against the presence of ISIS and our efforts to um, to secure, you know, a peace for the people there. Um, it's my understanding, David, that what we have negotiated, what the vice president of the United States, Mike Pence, negotiated was that Turkey would stop live fire, stop, it would be a ceasefire, they would stop live fire for uh, a period of time until tomorrow, Tuesday, during which all of the people in this 30-mile-wide swath uh, region were expected to leave. They were expected to leave their homes. They were expected to leave uh, everything behind. They were expected to go somewhere else because Turkey intends to use their homes and their region to resettle um, refugees from other parts of Syria who have been uh, displaced in Turkey for the last number of years during the Syrian civil war. Um, there true. is there is just nothing about this that sounds just. Well, indeed not. I mean, I think um, on the other hand, you, you have to make, you have to give Turkey credit for having provided hospitality un, unwillingly for literally millions of refugees from Syrian war in Syria who came across the border into Turkey. And Turkey legitimately wants to give these people a chance to get out of Turkey back into Syria, or at least Arab-speaking country. Um, And so they have the additional issue of wanting um, wanting to keep the Kurdish people, who they regard as a terrorist organization, from being a danger on the, their own border with Syria and capable of mounting terrorist attacks uh, against the Turkish population, which unfortunately the Kurds have done previously. So nobody is completely guilt-free in this instance. And the current ceasefire at least, I think, is a step in the right direction because the Turks are not operating, they're not implementing a sort of um, cleansing of populations to get, get people completely out of places they were before. It's, it's basically come to a ceasefire. All right. Uh, it's certainly a story that we will watch, and we will watch with you. David Aikman, thank you so much, as always, for being with us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much for having me on, Carmen. It's always a pleasure. We'll be right back. So I'm thinking this morning uh, about the Carrie Underwood song, Do You See What I See? There are probably other, uh, other versions of this as well. But this question of whether or not you see what I see, um, because I am seeing with eyes that see by faith, not necessarily eyes that see only by sight. And so uh, let me just pose that question to you. Do you see what I see? I know we've got uh, one listener out there who sees what I see, and because we have talked this morning about seeing things that others don't see, seeing with spiritual eyes, uh, this one listener feels less alone. Uh, That encourages me today, and I want you to know, if you see the unseen realm, if you see what God is doing, if you see his handiwork, if you're connecting the dots uh, between the eternal and the everyday today, let me just go ahead and confirm and affirm, I see what you see, and I am with you and I am for you. So go out there and be an ambassador of that king and that kingdom. Have a great day, and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. 
If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.